Hello friends, uh, Andrea with the Bangs here. In this episode, I speak with John Kerbo. He's done some service in the military, uh, spent some time in the Middle East, where he spoke with uh, warring tribes and tried to figure out how to have them sit down and uh, have successful talks. So he's taking his knowledge from that and putting it here in North America, trying to figure out how to build bridges between the left and the right. And so we talk a lot about that and why people end up having very emotional responses to certain uh, situations and how we can maybe move forward to understand each other better um, on, on different sides. So it was a really fascinating conversation. Um, it felt like I learned a lot from this one. So can you start by giving me a little bit of your background about how you got into this kind of work? This, well, you'll tell me. Sure. So, um, and I do think I hear another oncoming train. Oh, don't worry about it. We can barely hear it. I can hear you fine. So in short, as we've talked about, I I have two of my early passions were science as well as the military. So I have a military background. I was six years active duty. Um, Did a stint with a, a Pentagon program called the Human Train System, which was sort of like applied social science in the war zone. I guess we're like sort of glorified peacemaker. I call us war zone hippies. So we try to mediate between combat teams with army and Marines and the uh, culture and the tribal system in Afghanistan to try to be liaisons. We go out there on missions and we try to use the language and the culture as a way to multiply both ways to mitigate risk and keep everybody say, you know, avoid violence, but also how to productively work with the population. So it's a big facet of what they call counterinsurgency. And I also started, I came back from Afghanistan in 2012, started a social um, innovation project about using some of the best tools from the war zone when it comes to ways to work with the population and also some stuff from anthropology and community mapping to try to systemize better ways we can connect with our neighborhoods here at home and rebuild some of our broken civil infrastructure. And by that, I mean the disconnect between police departments and neighborhoods, the disconnect between government services and communities, and just the fact that we need to really listen to people on the ground and give them a voice and let communities build themselves from the bottom up. So I uh, started that, and that's been a, that was a big sort of, you know, startup phase, went through a lot of hardship there, bounced back, got a pilot project off the ground. And in doing that, I've also been looking at doing a parallel project on anti-extremism for the homeland, for how do we combat all types of radicalization and dangerous ideas and extremism, whether it be Islamist or white supremacist and extreme, uh, you know, types of ways to recruit young, disaffected men in their mom's basement, everything in between. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was that our country had become more div- uh, so tribal and divided that, for example, in Afghanistan, we could sit down and talk to people who sometimes wanted to kill us or didn't like us, even sometimes Taliban leaders and, you know, former Mujahideen warlords. We could drink tea and find productive ways sometimes to work together against some of the more violent militants. And yet in this country, people won't even talk to their next door neighbor or they can't even they get behind their keyboard and we're becoming so polarized that I feel like this country has become its own kind of tribal war zone. So nice. that was hard. It was kind of soul crushing. So I want to look at ways to try to bring out better forms of discourse, Look at, uh, learn about moral psychology and Jonathan Haidt's research, Steven Pinker and other types of uh, insights into how we can understand the nature of some of these disconnects, but also applying some of the tools of counterinsurgency and tribal engagement as well. And try to, try to build a bridge between more Americans and, and build on, close the empathy gap mm. and find those 
common ground where we actually agree on far more than we think. We're not as divided as we think. But in doing that, help drive a wedge against some of the real, the diehards, the extremists, the people you're not going to reach. And, and that distinction is huge. Building bridges with the ones you can and driving a wedge against the ones you can't. And people on the left and right tend to see things in all or none terms. I mean, they tend to not understand this nuance. And they just say, anyone outside my bubble, outside my ideological bubble is the enemy. And that kind of warfare doesn't work. And we learned that from, you know, over a decade of counterinsurgency in two war zones, we've learned that just kicking in doors and dropping bombs doesn't work. Just like punching everyone in the face here doesn't work. Blocking everybody on Twitter doesn't work. We, there, there's other things we need to do. We actually have to use conversation as a non-lethal weapon against extremism and hateful ideas. That's not the only solution, but it's, it's the most neglected solution. So Right. Well, okay, so I do want to get into what are some of the tactics, but how did it get to be this bad? Is it simply because of platforms like Twitter? I don't feel uh, like it was always that way on Twitter, though. So, like, what no, is it, Trump? No. Like... What oh, it's all—it's all Trump. It's nothing else. It's literally—I'm just kidding. No, I, was say, I'm like, I mean, oh, that's not—that's not what I expected. So this is a, a prime example of this kind of tribal um, mindset, and then this 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 thing that's taken over our national psyche like a virus. Is this a uh, this tendency for? T- mo- I'd say a majority of my friends that strongly identify on the left or the right will only blame the other side. They mm-hmm. rarely say we're part of the problem. They say it's just the li- it's just liberals. Or no, it's just the right. And they rarely want to bend the mirror and use any kind of introspection or self-correcting process, even though self-correcting ways of thinking, ways of learning from our mistakes and adapting, are what drives the success of everything from military to mixed martial arts to science, innovation, business startups, and everything you think of thrives on learning from our mistakes and adapting to criticism or constantly growing and adapting. But our politics functions the exact opposite way, where the brain doesn't want to be wrong, the, the brain will try to buffer off ideas coming from what they see as a moral outgroup, and they bond with the in-group. So then the brain almost shuts down and almost like a, like a boxer will just reflexively try to like guard itself against any incoming ideas that might force it to change its mind. And so this doubling down effect means it's people aren't learning and adapting. So our politics are becoming more entrenched and rigid and ideologically uh, fixed instead of adaptable. So people well, wait, can't... I have a question though. Uh, sorry, yeah. why was it not like this before? That's why I brought sure. up Trump. It doesn't have to be Trump alone. Yeah. That's I just that was like a point in time, 2016. So that's why well, I'm like, why is it worse now? There's and this is just a this is just I, I tend to agree with this, but there's a um, studies been done on um, that, that arguably say we're more polarized than we've ever been since the Civil War. They look at critical junctures or turning points where. Like, for example, 1994 with Newt Gingrich and the Republicans and the Democrats where this team sport mentality, this idea of segregating into these like tribal moral sort of our team versus your team, all, you know, black and white ways of thinking became almost sacrosanct. So, for example, you know, people used to Congress used to go to cigar bars and talk about each other's mistresses and hang out and then they get they get shit done, even if they disagreed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they'd at least be honest enough to go to back rooms and say, hey, we don't agree, but we actually we actually hang out together and we're friends. Whereas now, it really is a kind of political segregation. And it really is just this deep-rooted dysfunctionality. And we saw this increase under, obviously under Bush and a lot of the polarization there. And a lot of it's been fueling these ideological echo chambers through the media using filter bubbles where people get their news feed around what they want to hear. So they wake up reading, you know, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Fox News, whatever, watching Fox News or MSNBC. 
and they're and they're their computers and their newspapers are telling them, I'd say, I'd say more is more a digital algorithm. They're being fed things that confirm their bias. Mm. And then people bonded around these tribal narratives. I mean, you like talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, that is an extremely tribal narrative reinforcing, you know, it, it's just a de- just been a de- well over a decade of, of, um, of, of a very rigid way of thinking of what I call platform ideology, where people have like a dozen different views from foreign policy to gun control to abortion to the Iran nuclear deal to economic theory. And you can predict their views on almost all those issues based on their views on one of them. Mm. And that that shouldn't happen. Like, like how, what, is the, what is the odds that all your views happen to line up in this really neat platform and you just thought of this all by yourself and it has nothing to do with, the, with being exposed to constant narratives from your favorite news channels. I mean, this is a experiment in adults acting far more irrational than their children. And this is terrifying. And, mm. and, and most, I think most Americans are smarter than this. I think there's this disillusion culture. Some call it the new center, but it's not about centrism per se. It's about free thinking. Most people I talk to in bars from coast to coast, from here to inner cities to countryside, tend to be fed up with this polarization and this okay. kind of lockstep media thinking. But it's affected enough people and then the digital layer like Twitter and things like that have added another layer on top of it. And that's not to blame Twitter, but it's the, this, this kind of um, these filter bubbles and this echo chamber thinking that gets multiplied by the power of social media, which amplifies the worst on the other side. Um, and then obviously Trump. And I, I can't I think we talked about this because I'm still technically in the U.S. military through the reserves. Uh, I cannot uh, really comment on our commander in chief. I can't really have an opinion on him right. in public like this. Okay. However, I can certainly talk about some of his hardcore supporters and some of the dynamics here. Mm-hmm. And under sort of the MAGA effect, you've seen a lot more polarization just to add on to the layers we already have. So Even with the hat, even with that red hat, it, yeah. it's, it's a symbol of freedom to some, and it's a hate symbol to others. Yeah. And it's not really it, in between. Right. Well, people tend to galvanize around symbols, and this is where my background in uh, what's called psyop or psychological operations, you know, psychological warfare, if you want to use a broader term. It's uh, a subset of a kind. It's a kind of uh, the modern battlefield is basically described by what they call asymmetric warfare. It's not just tank on tank, force on force. There's another human layer. There's different layers of cyber propaganda, of recruiting, of, of, of hiding among the population and working through ideas. And so that battle space of ideas is where a lot of the modern battles are fought mm. alongside kinetic operations and your shooters and your trigger pullers. So you have both, you have these combined effects, what they call lethal and non-lethal. And, and so psychological, I mean, there's a long history, it goes back to you know, World War I and World War II, but, and the Russians have their parallel history as well. But it basically means how to understand and influence people and try to move them toward a behavior or to stop a behavior. Oh, it makes and, you think of like the Google algorithm, like uh, like with regards to or Facebook with, with like nudging people in the election. Is that something that? Well, that's, that's a, yeah, that's a that's a Cambridge Analytica did use what they call psychometrics. And there's debates about how effective that is. Okay. But it certainly it, it can certainly build an online profile. And there's some research on this I can show you. But it's it shows that you can look at key patterns of people and their interaction with their families and over social media and, and, and people are so predictable and, and just in these platform views where they're, they're, their whole outlook is almost fed to them on, a, on an ideological spoon. Mm. And so what Cambridge figure out how to do, and then they've done, they've influenced elections abroad as well as worked with the 2016 one, is um, building an online profile based on people's 
Facebook and then using that to try to nudge them. Now, whether that actually affected voting behavior in a concrete way, honestly, I'm not sure, but mm. it's certainly there are a lot of other pieces there that did. So lots of fake news, lots of different types of disinformation, which probably the Russians are, have become masters of going all the way back to Lenin. I mean, they are the foremost experts, I think, on disinformation warfare. Mm. And so that ha that actually was effective. It's not the only thing, but that definitely enabled um, a shift in outcomes. And I think the reason the Russians are so effective is because we're so fundamentally vulnerable and we're so amenable to being emotionally manipulated and we're so um, easily uh, um, deceived by count by fake by fake news and by things that are factually untrue. And, and so we do with this kind of post-truth culture enables foreign influence to really affect us. So, so the center of gravity in this fight is rebuilding what I call our, our cognitive infrastructure. I mean, I'm sure that's a term other people use, but it's like our own ability to ask questions and fact check and talk to people outside our bubble, getting neighbors talking to neighbors, getting Americans talking to Americans again. That's how we really harden ourselves against disinformation. A lot of these campaigns are used to exacerbate rifts and racial fracturing and cause ex, ex, um, exacerbate polarization and including stir up racial tensions and that can fundamentally divide us and undermines the fabric of our civil society. So that really is a, a new kind of warfare we're not adapting to and I think a lot of our veterans from PSYOP and from information warfare understand how this works. <clears throat> I mean I, I watch, you know, spending years watching politicians manipulate voters on TV and watching corporate media do it, it's painful because I know what they're doing. I know the methodology. I know the playbook. You give me a laptop and I can freaking, you know, and a Russian keyboard, and I speak Russian, obviously, but I wouldn't need it. I would, you know, do it in English. Give me a freaking keyboard in a basement somewhere in a bottle of vodka, and I can manipulate Americans to do the same thing. I know how they do it. And so we need to – I look at it like Star Wars. You have the Siths and the Jedi, and the, the playbook of how to manipulate people and conduct war is like the Force, Right. There's plenty of people, it's mostly been used for bad when it comes to politicians, media, and foreign adversaries or foreign influence. We need a team of Jedi who can actually understand how people are manipulated and give people the tools to fight back and to see when they're being, when, when they're being uh, nudged or understand how propaganda works. Yeah, how do we know? That's, yeah. that's what I, yeah, that's what we're getting to. Like, so that, is it... Is it, I mean, the politicians nudging because they want you to vote for them, of course. And that kind of makes sense. Yeah. That they, yeah, there's I know that it's good, great, yeah. but, that's what, but who else other than the politicians and then media? But is it for, are, are there a lot of foreign influences that we don't know? Like the bots, like the Russian bots? Oh, yeah. Oh, those are very, yeah. And, and here's the thing, too. And by the way, when I talk about SIAP, I'm, I'm merely talking about my background. As per the U.S. Constitution, the, the United States government is not supposed to, and I hope does not, Sigh out the American people, and that that is certainly for a good reason, right? Um, obviously, we know Russia. Though, like, what about private? Right, exactly. That's the loophole. Right. And and what I'm saying is not anything spooky. It's just an open, honest way to try to take expertise and in information warfare and use it to help you know rebuild civil society and get people these tools. And so it's like for with Russian bots, the, the, this the issue of Russia tends to be exaggerated by the left. But it's underplayed by the right. And this just goes Why? back to comedy. Why is that? Well, it's confirmation bias. I mean, you can almost run experiments on Facebook where you take a position liberals like and conservatives like and then switch around the person saying it. So you take someone you, that the other side doesn't like but have them say something their side would otherwise agree with. 
and you trick them into siding against their own opinions. So, for example, I could quote Noam Chomsky, but I could say it was a uh, it was a uh, Thomas Sowell saying it, who's a conservative libertarian, and then I could get you know lefties to say, oh, I don't I don't like that, I don't blah blah blah. I'm like, well, listen, don't worry about who's making the argument. What's the content of what's being said? Mm -hmm. And they'll still often side against it merely based on who's saying it. Okay. And I'll say, well, actually, that wasn't. Uh, Noam Ch that wasn't Thomas Sowell, it was Noam Chomsky. Or I could go to a conservative. I could quote Noam Chomsky all day on propaganda and education and things like that and how people are manipulated and say it was Thomas Sowell. And conservatives would be like, oh, yeah, I agree with that. They'd be like, oh, actually, it was Noam Chomsky. And then I could go to a control group or another group and, and actually have Noam Chomsky with those same quotes that they would dismiss it immediately okay. simply because of who said it. So you can a 10-year-old can learn to do this on Facebook and just run these experiments. Right. So that confirmation bias, you know, like tons of people could see new facts about Russia for or against their narrative, and they'll still often maintain their position. Okay. Because they just think, yeah. Well, the right used to be so, like, I mean, watch out for those card-carrying communists, you know, like like with the McCarthy era. They were so yeah. concerned about Russia, and now it's switched. Is it because of the sort of Russia rigged the election sort of thing about with with the 2016 think, election is yeah. that why? I, it's it's a lot. Of, I think a main reason is team sport tribalism, where people and 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 even though it's post Cold War, Russia's not technically communist. It's more of an oligarchic, you know, yeah. hybrid model. Yeah. But it's definitely. But yeah, the you know this. A lot of we what we're discovering after post 2016, and we are a lot of us already knew this, but we're seeing this rampant sort of what I call the rise of the tribalists. These people that really are less about being pro-America and more about our team and our moral values and our sort of uh, traditionalism and our identity versus the other team. So it's about fighting for one's political moral identity. And that becomes more important than seeking truth. It becomes more important than going back to the Constitution. It's often what, what will reinforce my team winning. Right. And that, that truth takes a backseat to that. And that, that mindset is so immensely dangerous. And I think one step is creating a kind of exodus on and i'm not saying it's a 50 50 equivalency every time i say both sides do it people are like oh you're saying it's an equivalency no i'm not i don't know why people assume that but i always have to make the disclaimer i'm not saying it's an equivalency some people think the right's worse some people think the left's worse the bottom line is we need to understand the problem of these echo chambers and this team sport mentality and we need to start building a movement of free thinkers across the left right and center across the spectrum and get more people to converge on the idea of living conversations based on the humility to be wrong and the willingness to be wrong and say, I can change my mind and truth and facts are more important than my political identity. That, that is so right. fundamentally important. And it doesn't require people to give up some of the things near and dear to their heart. Like I'm not, certainly people fighting for more civil rights or human rights or fighting for their right not to be oppressed, however you define that. People often think I'm asking people to give that up they're, they're, because they're saying, oh, you're saying emotions and feelings are important. No, feelings and emotions are important. Empathy is important. Compassion is important. And human dignity should be the driver of our politics. But alongside that, we need the other pillar of skepticism, facts, and reason. We need both. Right. And both of those things have been fundamentally attacked by our style of discourse and we need people to admit that you know okay so what's the style of discourse we need to adopt like how can we move from the wrong 
side of things over to the right side of things. Sorry, I should say correct. Yeah. I don't want to have rather yeah, no, right, no. left, right, wrong, right. I mean Watch the out. correct. You're, put up on a meme. You're gonna have someone put you up on a meme yeah. and put you out of Move over to the right more, I know. So how do we get yeah. to the more healthy way of doing discourse away? What are some of the tactics you've been sort of throwing around? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, founded uh, or co-founded um, this uh, project called Exchange Spaces, which is about a um, an alternative to the model that we see on camp on many campuses. It's a new way to create real spaces of open-minded exchange and living conversations and more practical, healthy ways for centrists and skeptics and leftist social justice types to actually identify what they agree on and better understand each other. Because a lot of times the biggest problem, like 80% of the problem sometimes, is people don't know what the hell the other side is actually saying, and they reflexively see the worst in the other side. So for example, getting someone from Black Lives Matter and someone who's skeptical of, of, of uh, social justice to actually first define what they agree on that they do want to see more equality, they do, you know, believe that there's a problem and they do understand a lot of people are hurting and that they need a voice. And secondly, to at least, rather than rush to conclusions about what they think the other person believes, ask them what they believe and really listen to each other. And then someone can be a mediator and actually map out where they, where their values converge. And the tool, there, there are more effective tools to do this. They're actually really effective ways to engage and build networks of people that are not on the fringes, but they're actually closer to your position than you think. So you, for example, there's tons of people I know that are self-identified centrist or slightly right-leaning, or even just classical liberals that believe you cannot talk to so-called SJWs and say you can't talk to the left, they're too far out there. Mm -hmm. And they're finally wrong. It depends mm. on the person. And so I, you know, and same thing with people that are in the center. There are many people in the center if you approach them the right way and talk to them the right way, they would be amenable to listening. They would understand what toxic masculinity means. The thing is that word has been so butchered and mm -hmm. thrown around far left and it's been so there's been such a defensive allergic reaction by the right that the word itself fails in translation. It just blows up like a Molotov cocktail and people use it. Okay, can you can you give like yeah. a, a what they both mean? Like what does it mean yeah. to someone on the left so, and then someone on the right? Yes. That's, this is the thing. It's like a two-by-two two table and, and, and effective ways to actually unpack this. You can do it visually or verbally, but basically take toxic masculinity as an example. To many people on the right, or I, I would say just, just people, I'll forget left and right for a second, I'd say to the mo to, to majority of people I know that are males that hear it, what, what they think that means is a fundamental attack on their identity, on masculinity as a whole. Maleness, yeah. Maleness, just a way to sort of shame and dismiss maleness and just this whiny overtone of like dismissing men and saying men are bad and 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 and, and they they suspect this ideological agenda behind the word mm -hmm. and there are many people on the left who do actually harbor an, an anti-male agenda that really is a real thing okay but it's not those people so they hear it and they think oh god you're you you're, know, one you're attacking them. yeah yeah exactly you think it's bad to go to the gym and work out and teach my son how to you know, roll around and play and stand up for himself and learn to fight. And, you know, maybe it's bad for men to joke around and have be, you know, have like camaraderie and things like that. So they think it's an attack on, on masculinity itself. And whereas in a, in a more clinical and scientific sense, toxic masculinity really should, it often does refer to um, some of the very harmful 
uh, traits, including ways of thinking, ways of being brought up, and some behaviors that men across cultures and across societies do that really are harmful. We look at recruiting for jihadis or white white nationalists and white militants and extremists, you see the same pattern. You see a real horseshoe theory between the far right and the Islamist when it comes to disaffected males and military-age males. When we're in Iraq and Afghanistan, military-age males are often a prime target for the insurgents to recruit. They are one of our key audiences we have to engage. So learning to talk to disaffected young men is one of the most important things we can do. So toxic masculinity is a real thing. There really are harmful ways to express one's masculinity, but there are also very healthy ways to express one's masculinity or learn to uh, become a man or in, in one's respective culture. There's no mm. getting rid of that. Mm. So cultivating, for example, um, the idea of kindness, compassion alongside mental and physical uh, toughness, fortitude, learning, you know, rolling your kid in jujitsu and learning to make mistakes and fail and then get back up and learning practical skills to defend themselves and their neighbor and their future family, mm-hmm. that actually makes some better people. It makes them more humble, more kind, more willing to avoid fights, but also more competent. Mm-hmm. That is a version of masculinity. And, and we know clinically that, that there really are better and worse ways to cultivate the concept of masculinity. Right. So explain in just in 30 seconds, you know, some people here, they think, oh, you're attacking men. Others would be like, well, no, we're attacking unhealthy versions of, of manhood and bad things some men do and there everyone knows these examples every everyone has friends or wives or daughters that have been or family members that have been yeah. harassed assaulted right, right? everyone right. knows that when you go to a bar and there's that jerk you know wanting to fight you or everyone knows that men often suck and do bad things so we have to uncouple toxic masculinity from healthy masculinity and once you explain that and this could take literally a minute you diffuse this fundamental. I know, but thoughts. like like us right now, a minute. Yeah. But on on Twitter, it can sometimes yeah escalate before it starts because. Oh, uh, seen a million. Do you get that a lot? Like when you try to talk about no, something. No, I'm pretty. I'm pretty good at disarming my opponents because I don't awesome. see them as opponents. That's right, the thing. Right, right. I'm pretty like, and honestly, I'm. I don't usually. You've got to kind of delve into like I don't I I don't go looking. Do you know what I mean? I I'm not usually going down into different extremist bits of Twitter. I usually right. stick to my sort of space, and then there are some people. Mostly, I talk to people I know, and everyone who knows me, they're like, "Oh, well, we know she reads things in the." the most charitable way. So I'll read her stuff in the most charitable way. Like that's usually exactly. how it goes for me exactly. because I've really worked on it to be like, okay, why am I here? I'm here to learn a lot of things. Cause there's a lot of really smart people on this platform. That's what why I'm there. Cause that's, I don't usually share a ton of opinions. I usually ask questions because I'm curious. <laughs> so, no, that's good. You're coming there with a, that, that's the key too, is cultivating, uh, intellectual humility and valuing the willingness to change our minds like right. without having a feedback loop without having that corrective mechanism of knowing you're wrong you're going to fail and this is where but it doesn't come from- at first like to at first like it's not second nature or first nature right. or third nature like on twitter i'm a, i'm not the typical is the thing um, right right and i'm female practice. like there's a lot of dudes who are a lot stronger in their 
not even stronger. Men are more blunt. So I have a, you know, oh, I got to word this carefully because I don't like conflict. And a lot of men, I think, are a little bit more prone to being a bit more blunt because I think that's just a generalization that is often correct. Right? Right. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's really not all men. Hashtag not all men. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But that's another example is a lot of times, and I call this Schrodinger's politics, or I call it Schrodinger's leftist or Schrodinger's right-winger, okay. is where people, there's this doublespeak where people, you know, say, this isn't what we are, this isn't what Me Too is about, and then we're, that's just a stereotype or a straw man by the right. Mm-hmm. But then other people will come along saying they're with Me Too, that really will promote the crazy thing that most people who support Me Too say yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. Or, like, it isn't a witch hunt, which it, to most people supporting me too, it's really not. It really is just about equality and calling out hurtful things that women deal with and getting people to, to call it out and better themselves. That is what I think I truly believe most people support and what I, what I support as well. But there, there is that fringe that really does not care if innocent men are ruined and that really yes. has a kind of epistemology. And what the problem is like a lot of my friends on the left, they'll say, oh, no, the, no, one, no one's actually – no one's actually trying to indoctrinate kids in kindergarten or blah, blah. Then I'll show them examples of leftists that want to do that. And I'll say, but then, and then the, but then the, instead of denouncing it and saying, well, that's not us, they'll actually be in favor of the thing they said they weren't in favor of. Right. This and happens- that's the tribalism thing, right? Like to being right. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's almost like saying, oh, that's a caricature. We don't really believe that. But then and when then people the do, happens. they just sort of side with their team as if, and they never see the contradiction. Like right. what I'll ask my, it's like, you know, does the left actually want to, the far left want to, you know, implement these kinds of draconian hate speech laws we see in parts of Europe? And could, if this really would silence people and really be a breach of freedom of speech, would you support it? And they'll say, well, no, that's, the, that's, that's a lie. The left's not trying to do that. All we're trying to do is blah, blah. But then I'll show them leftists that really are trying to do this. And instead of admitting this is a problem, they'll side with those leftists. It, uh, with the very thing they said they didn't do. So it's like the left doesn't do this. I'll show them an example of the left doing the thing, and then they'll actually support the thing. It, okay. It's called Schrodinger's politics, where something is, but it isn't. Right, and I'm sure it happens on the right as well. I'm sure it oh, happens across it, the spectrum. Oh, with Trump, with hardcore Trump, your hardcore MAGA people, it's, it's like even worse. Oh. Holy crap. <laughs> gone down rabbit holes that it almost like required me to almost want to drop some acid just to get out of them. And okay. I don't, I can't, I don't do drugs, but like, I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I have a question because the, this is the thing. And I kind of just did it now when something negative is brought up about one mm-hmm. side and there's a sort of knee jerk reaction to be like, well, the other side though, they do it too. They yeah. do that bad thing. Cause there's another example. So the thing about what the toxic about- masculinity, what? It's called what about is Yes. Okay. Yes. And the, like the toxic masculinity, what I'm sure, cause every time I usually am, I do stuff on either side. Cause like, right. I, I like uh, having rights as a woman, but I also have three boys and I'm like, I want them to, you know, not have to worry every little thing when they get right. older, you know? So I, I kind of, I, 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 I can see a lot of different things on both sides. So, with the toxic masculinity thing, I, I, because I, 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 like I said, I sometimes do like pro women stuff because I'm pro women. I'm not uber feminist, but I am pro women having rights. 
um, within like like equality wise, egalitarian wise, and then I'm also concerned with uh, the sort of toxic mas- toxic masculinity thing being taken too far as well. But every if I ever do anything about um, women, sorry, no, men that is like oh watch out for this with regards to men, like what you kind of did with the toxic like there is toxic masculinity too though, right? People are oh, like absolutely. well, but women. Women will be toxic as well. So you like you forgot them. Like you didn't say you didn't do the you didn't include the both sides. Like you were talking only about men. You included good things about the men, but you also said right. like, but toxic masculinity is a thing. Like you so you see, and I know people who are watching. Sorry, because maybe that has happened to me on Twitter. I don't I don't want to make assumptions, audience. But I know that that is a, a temptation. I just did it too. Like, but with the other thing about, like, left and right, being like, well, what about women, though? They have toxic side, too. Same with, there is, like, this, uh, another example is Antifa just had a thing with the Proud Boys in Portland um, a couple days ago. And someone, I think it was, uh, like, Ellen's producer, Andy something, he tweeted out about, like, this is so not the left, Antifa, get out of here, or something like that. Like, we're not with you. And then he deleted it because people were giving him crap about it because he didn't denounce the far right group at the same time. Yeah. So he denounced. So he, sorry, he he deleted it. He deleted his initial thing. He didn't. He just so can't even criticize Antifa. It's, it's like people should just have a disclaimer, like a like a screenshot saying, "By the way, as this gets tweeted out, I am denouncing both sides." Yes. No, I'm not. Of extremism. Yes. Yes. So yeah. that's exactly what it was like because he only picked on one side. His own, he's because he's probably on the left. I think he was saying our like this is not our left, but because yeah. he was like, like, but but because he didn't say. Oh, also of course I don't, and I actually like I see why I know why that happened because, like I, like I'm predicting, like like I kind of even just did that. Like but on the right too, it happens. Right. What is that? Is that wrong though? It's kind of true. Like I know you said it's what about is. I'm so like what do you what do we do with that? Because it's it's true. Well, we have to get there. So Twitter, a single tweet often is not enough room to really encapsulate all their views and what they believe and what they're trying to say. And we ru- we have this culture of rush into judgment. And I think Joe Rogan said it well. We've become like a generation with the most access to information, the simultaneously the stupidest. Okay. To paraphrase. Like, like we reflexively assume what people mean and assume the worst in their values and assume so much of what they say based on one tweet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we have to look at it in, in with a nuance of... of a, a, a kind of what I call a two-sided nuance here, where there are some people that won't denounce the Proud Boys. They're just they'll just go after Antifa, and that could be their reasoning for denouncing Antifa. Mm-hmm. Those people exist. Mm-hmm. However, other people that just denounce Antifa in a tweet, they may also denounce the Proud Boys, and they may also go after them as well. Mm. It depends on the person. It's sort of like some people who criticize Islam may be closeted anti-Muslim bigots, right. but most who criticize Islam, if they do it honestly with intellectual integrity, they're just doing it based on criticizing ideas. So it depends on who's saying it. Some people who criticize Israel are anti-Semites. Other people who criticize Israel are just making genuine criticisms of Israeli policy. And the left seems to understand this immensely when Ilhan Omar comes up, but Mm -hmm. they don't seem to get any time anyone outside their sphere or bubble says anything that might be, you know, that, that might, where, that might be Anytime anyone says anything that do with the motivation, they could have a dual motivation or they could have okay. different motivations. Right. So anytime someone says something about Islam, 
you know, they, they often, there's not this t tendency to immediately insist on giving them the benefit of the doubt. Right. You know, yes, yeah, some people are bigots, but others are not. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Like the thing with Ben Affleck and Sam Harris, right? Yeah, I was thinking about that, yeah. Yeah, so now this is being turned on the left where, you know, criticism of Israel is being conflated with immediate assumption of, of anti-Semitism. Okay. And the left all of a sudden understands why this is a problem when it goes after them. And that's what I've been saying all along. We need to we need to be better at listening to what the person says and not make these logical fallacies, these all or none binary fallacies, these, these false binaries where it's like anyone who says this can only have this motive. It must only mean this. And, and so like, it's like saying, don't even criticize Antifa in a tweet unless you're also going to fit something about the far right. And they're like, come on, grow up, you know? Well, it's hard because it's hard because some people do have nefarious reasons for those anti Islamic or anti-Israel or those sometimes it is and so it's it's sort of and it could be veiled in what I'm just doing one of those criticisms that's oh, that's not you know against the people it's just the whatever you know, like it, you could veil it very easily it's hard to yeah. know well that's where information warfare comes into play so a tactic the far right often uses is they'll hide behind satire they'll say lol just trolling they'll hide behind right. logic and reason so there are with a lot of and part of this in, in from a from like a cyber perspective is understanding your target audience who you want to talk to understanding the conditions that affect their thinking and what is what what how are they why are they reacting the way they are so a lot of people on the left the reason they often automatically assume that you're coming from a place of bigotry is because they're so used to dealing with actual bigots hiding behind logic and reason. That really is a problem. There are a lot of right-wing bigots that mask their bigotry and their racism in this kind of veiled sort I'm just of being real. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they'll hide behind, you know, Dave Rubin language, but then there are many other people that are using what I call Dave Rubin language or just, you know, language of like trying to have this new center of reasonable discourse. I, I myself am part of this, right? That, that are coming from a genuine place and literally are trying to be reasonable. But that, but we often get conflated with the right because the left is so used to only dealing with the right because they're in an echo chamber. They're not talking to people that are open-minded. They're not talking to people having a conversation with them. They're in these rabbit holes of right-wing douchebaggery and they just can't seem to get their – they can't seem to uncouple that experience from other people they talk to. So they're just okay. – just, puts them in this kind of reflexive alarm mode so that unless you speak their language, unless you're a leftist, they're going to distrust you. So you have to build, the first thing people often have to do is build trust. Okay, so often, how do we yeah. do that? So part of the playbook for exchange spaces is somewhat mirrors some of the tribal engagement we used in Afghanistan, for example, or to some degree the counterinsurgency in Iraq, uh, where you identify your conduits or your nodes within society, who you talk to, who you can build common ground with, and you want to seek out and, and build rapport and trust, real genuine trust and, and genuine respect with members of the community you want to talk to. So if I'm an outsider and I approach a village and I have no credibility in that village, I probably won't win, win over or even attain a, a good foothold in that area. But if I talk to some of the leaders, the local people, the communicators, the elders, that already have credibility and they vouch for me and they at least give me an introduction and they say, look, we want to work with this person. And, and, you know, I actually, you know, we, we've spent weeks building a kind of rapport. Then you can have an inroad or a conduit into that community. So if I'm 
going to try to talk to social activists and build some trust, uh, some some sensible dialogue and some trusting relationship. I need to seek out members of that community. You know, talk to friends or befriend people that are themselves social justice activists that really are engaged in this kind of activism. Sit down with them, coffee or beer, and just explain what you what you're trying to accomplish and right. disarm the situation by saying, look. I understand why you're skeptical. I understand why you're, you deal with all these right-wing people. And I understand a lot of centrists like myself also fail to empathize with people of color and things people are going through and gays and trans and other things. And that is a problem. There is an empathy gap, and a lot of us need to be better at listening. So okay. I want to help my side be better at listening. And I also want to see if we can help more on your side try to be a little more open-minded to think areas where they might be wrong. And this will ultimately help you. And, and that approach, and that's, that's a very summarized description but mm -hmm. basically with the influencers and working with the communicators in these different tribal groups this can work on a campus this can work in an inner city or in, in a rural America this can work across the country and this can, certainly has worked in the mountains of Afghanistan and the other thing is looking at a spectrum of what I call uh, red blue and purple so if you look at who to engage look at like a spectrum on the red side that's your diehards your extremists your true believers whether they're suicide bombers or they're just Proud Boys, they're fully devoted to starting fistfights, or they're what I call political LARPers, ninja, foot clan, LARPing, Antifa people that just fully insist on anyone outside their sphere as the enemy, right? Right. Versus, you know, then there's the purple zone. That's, that is your fence sitters. That is kind of your key terrain. These are people that really could, they're on the fence, they could be swayed into an echo chamber, they could be swayed into the manosphere, they could be that 18-year-old young male who's being pulled into the Gavin McGinnis Batcave, right, by online, you know, chat rooms. Mm -hmm. But you can reach this person. We need to reach them. We need to give them an alternate way to express themselves, an alternate way to talk about men's issues that's actually healthy. Because okay. if we don't space, if they're afraid to say anything, they're going to go underground. And then your blue zone is people who agree with you. So it's a spectrum. Right. And this can apply to Thanksgiving dinner table, you know? Oh, gosh. Okay, so, yeah, in... I mean, that one, like, that's another one. Family is its own sort of battleground. I feel like you can it's, almost do with friends better than family, right? Because you're just like... That's true. It's true. For but, family, it's hard. Yeah, but, but, yeah, so as hard as family can be, like, online, that's where it's really hard. Because, like, the way you're describing it, it's like, oh, yeah, have grab a beer, grab a coffee with someone who's slightly across or maybe a little bit more across the aisle or whatever. But online, that's where I'd say most of the right i don't want to say most because but those of us who are on twitter or on the That's other true. sort of i don't know the yeah. other names of the platforms i know there are other ones i'm just on twitter myself but find your tinder bumble I'm that one kidding. yeah yeah so there's a lot of different places and reddit threads and whatnot and the four chans or whatever, oh, you know, God. like there's a lot of people there and there's a lot of damage that can be done between I mean, even when that, that Gillette commercial came out last year, or no, in January, that right. like like that was when everyone was like, like I saw the bashing of the heads, yeah. you know? could have. I might sound a little cocky here, coming from a PSYOP background. They could have avoided that mistake. They could have actually, most of that commercial, I thought was done pretty well. And I actually, I understood everything I think they were trying to say. I have enough of a background in this. Mm. I understood what they're trying to say. The majority of males in this country don't have this hyper-educated sort of woke back, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not, you know, 
they don't have this this detailed understanding of wokeology or have these different ways of and there are legitimate you know each clip in that had some legitimate concern about male behavior mm-hmm. and if you, if you actually spend time learning about this i understood what they're trying to say but when they all they see is these clips back to back they they the message didn't connect people didn't understand exactly what they were talking about and once again not to sound cocky but a lot a big part of their pushback could have been prevented. That ad, that ad could have been tweaked in slight ways that would have actually salvaged the message a lot better and could mm-hmm. have saved them probably billions of dollars. Yeah. And the thing is, the recent corporate, same thing with the uh, Pepsi commercial. That I don't was, even know what that, commercial that is. What happened there? It, well, basically, it, it turned out to be a train wreck. It was, it was very skillfully shot in terms of like a music video and cinematography. It was very skillfully shot. But it showed uh, Kendall Jenner walking up, opening up a Pepsi, handing it to a cop during a protest. And it really was seen as kind of oh. a tone-deaf way to trivialize um, the Black Lives Matter issue and what historically people have dealt with with police brutality. I mean, Martin Luther King's daughter, Coretta King, said, hey, if only my dad had just you know, given a Pepsi to someone, he could have not been shot. I mean, it was basically, it, you know, he'd still be alive or something like that. It was, okay. it was, it, people really, really... To, uh, very offended by it, okay. even though and Kendall Jenner was crying and uh, it wasn't her fault. She was just the actress in it. But the point is, these corporations they often bomb at trying to connect with people on social issues. The reason mm-hmm. is, in spite of their big budget, in spite of their seemingly unlimited resources for filming and production and think tanks and things like that, they still suck at this. And I think the reason they suck at it is because they look at stepping in social issues as an exotic thing they occasionally delve into when it's profitable. It's just like an, it's like an exotic thing they kind of dip into a little bit. Mm. Whereas from my background, this is what we do. This is mm. what we live in. This is our world. Understanding the different layers of um, society, culture, religious influences, suicide bombers, sectarian tribal warfare, and why people blow themselves up and how do you keep people from joining an insurgency – this is our. This is something we live and breathe. Mm. Understanding this from a psychological battleground perspective is what we do. Corporations just barely dip in this thing as some exotic experiment. Right. That's why they because they don't do it. And I mean, if they had a few psyopers on staff said, "Hey, here's a better way to pretest the message." And with the Gillette thing, they could have tweaked small things. In my opinion, I might be wrong, and they probably could have diffused a lot of people's uh, confusion and objections. Right. For one. Don't use that word toxic masculinity in that commercial because unless you're going to explain what it means, that word's already been hijacked. That word's already been so misused and mm. people are going to be really triggered when they hear it. Use a better – use a different word. Secondly, expl- some scenes like those kids play fighting, it looked like they were play fighting. Maybe it was just bad acting, but it looked like the kids were tumbling around. Mm-hmm. Tumbling around is good. That's what boys should do. There's been clinical studies on this. Tumble plays good for boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tumbled and played around like that, right? That's good. So people, they're like, boys will be boys, and it looks like they're saying, oh, it's bad to play fight. No, it's not. It's bad to solve your problems by fighting, and that is absolutely true. What the ad shown was, hey, don't solve your problems by fighting, and then enroll the kids in like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class or wrestling or something, and then then be like, yo, here's the proper way to get out some of your aggression and learn a valuable skill and become a better person, build character, and and just humble yourself and and get stronger and better mentally and physically. That's Mm. a good – good form of masculinity not that it's confined to men women women can do it just the same but you gotta say both sides otherwise both sides 
but there's like they could have done like taken like 10 seconds and adjusted certain clips in that mm -hmm. and avoided this train wreck and don't get me wrong there's millions of men that would have had a problem with it no matter what there really are men right. that resist it but everyone I, took it to be like you're saying dads because yeah. it was dads it was dads right you're saying dads yeah. are bad lumped in a million things at once they lumped in ass grabbing to rape to like chasing and bullying to like cat calling they just lumped all these things in yeah and they thought men thought oh they're saying all men do this and they do, yeah or this is the caricature of us that you're saying we are and like oh and then right. only some of us are because they didn't say most right. they even just said some are being better it was just very like triggering for yeah, i think well, for uh, for a yeah. lot of people yeah, but yeah, they just were trying to make money. That's the thing. Maybe maybe that's something we need to remember about anything that's in an ad campaign is they don't really actually care about the thing that they're projecting. They're just trying to make money. Right. And if they admit that, that's like, I wish they'd just be honest and be like, look, we're, we're about the bottom line. We're going to do some social good on the side. We are motivated by profit. If they would just be honest about that, I think people would be a lot less annoyed yeah. than when they but have But then that takes away the, like, no, we totally care about these no, things. No, you don't. Yeah, you They're don't. pretending, I know, but people like to think, the people who are taken in by, and are like, I love the commercial. They're like, I'll go right. and buy Gillette. You know, like, that's, same with Nike, with Colin Kaepernick, like, being that ad, doing the ad, remember? I do. I don't know if that one, that may have been a successful, uh, a lot uh, of people were upset about it, but I bet a lot of people were happy about it too. A lot, I, oh, yeah. I think it did work, it, like marketing-wise. Yeah, so that's good. There's always to be pushback there. I think, I mean, the thing with like, for example, we do need a good, a strong message across the media and across different types of across YouTube and across the information spectrum. We need better ways to combat toxic masculinity, but we need the best tools to do it. And the best tools to do that are science, data points, understanding human behavior, and understanding yeah. how to connect with your audience so and you don't get part And of definitions of what we're talking yeah. about. Because white supremacist doesn't mean the same thing of what I thought uh, a white supremacist was. I would think KKK, right. neo-Nazi. White supremacist yeah. doesn't mean that anymore. I don't no, think. The, the, no, so here's the thing. This is exactly why more on the left, and the ones that are doing this, kudos to them. I know some do this well, but most on the left that really yell about this, often just absolutely suck. Don't take this personal if you're on the left and you're listening to this, but a lot of them really suck at communication with people outside their bubble. They don't, it's like they're on a spaceship. They don't know how to talk to people on planet earth. Right. You need to trade, you need like a pocket translator for the average American. Yes, I, under, I understand critical race theory. I understand that white supremacy is, you know, and, and most people of color I think will agree with this, should, you know, is defined as a system in which White people benefit at the expense of people of color. It's a okay. systemic thing. It's not just people in hoods. Okay. However, if, if, if someone doesn't understand that and you're saying you're promoting white supremacy and that, that that's just it, full stop, they, they will immediately double down because the person's thinking they're being attacked as a Klansman because there's no, tr it's, like, it's like Star Trek. The, you know, there's this universal translator yes, between yeah. languages. Yeah. We need one of those for social justice. We need a better way to deliver these messages to people and get people engaged in effective ways. And the, what really bothers me is calling people white supremacists just for disagreeing with them. That is one of the stupidest ways to backfire any kind of productive right. communication or any way to reach people. And if you don't reach people, then guess what? Like, I tell all these people, if you, if you continue to refuse to learn from your mistakes and you don't want to learn how to communicate with average America, guess who's going to win in 2020? Right. Trump.
Mm-hmm. Or do you want that? I mean, he may not win, but he could. Mm. And, and a lot of times they'll double down. They don't care. They're like, I'd rather be, I'd rather continue to be ideologically pure and yell at people I disagree with than change my tactics to adapt them to the to actually reach to ex- people. To really explain and reach people. Okay, so can we, yeah. let's talk about systematic racism a bit. Because sure. I have like come through a bit of a journey of understanding what that means and yeah there is there so i'm i mean in can i'm in canada so we don't have um the sort of white black situation as there is in the states we do with um like say indigenous peoples we sort of have you know baggage and things to deal with but but it's um it's different so when i see Someone like Larry Elder telling Dave Rubin in Dave Rubin's aha moment of moving away from the left, the left that he was on or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no more systematic racism in the United States. It's not true. I, I know. So that's what I'm saying. Right. So I was like, oh, well, I mean, I'm a little white Canadian girl. Larry Elder's black and has stats right. that sound legit and Dave right. can't come up with anything when he's like, okay so remember I don't know if you've seen this like oh like Larry's like okay Dave what what are some what 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 what's systematic then and Dave's like uh well I don't know just racism like it just is and right. he couldn't come up. so so but I mean if he, if he was uninformed fine that's fine I'm not trying to be like oh look he didn't have anything he but but just because he didn't have anything to come up with doesn't mean there aren't systematic things, but can we can right. we talk a little bit about because that that's something that I've yeah. even tweeted about it, and I've had people. I mean, some have come up with some ideas because I have bits yeah. on different parts of the spectrum that I follow or that follow me as well. And some people said, "Yeah, there is," and here's some. But mostly, it was like, "Well, there was systematic racism. There, there isn't systematic racism in the United States anymore." Right. Well, I think a lot of people exaggerate it, but a lot of people underappreciate it. Like most of our social problems, you have people that will exaggerate the degree or 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 cate- over categorize things that shouldn't be categorized as you know as part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But then you have a lot of people that underappreciate the problem, and that's where uh, effective communication comes in. So a good disclaimer: if you're talking about something like this, if you're you know white like you and I are, is to just open up the caveat. You know, hey. I, I understand my have a limited perspective here. I try to hear from people of color. I try to include them in the conversation. That's how I get informed is I understand their lived experience. Mm. And that's not self-abusing, self-flagellating, white guilt nonsense, you know, superstitious bullshit that, you know, that this, a lot of these people, you know, really distort the issue by this self-flagellating kind of white guilt, which is just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. It's better to be humbled by the fact that you may be born with certain privileges and doesn't mean you're privileged in every way. I've had plenty of hardships, but I am privileged in some ways. I can walk past a cop car on foot very often without the same dealing with the same fears and apprehensions that a lot of black people do. That's just a fact. Right. Right. And and, and yet that doesn't mean I have to feel some kind of guilt. You, you, You can't control how you're born or what's, you know color you're born into. Mm. So this like, shame and guilt makes is a deadweight emotion that makes absolutely no sense in the conversation. And that that's something the left needs to learn to ditch. That is deadweight in their repository of conversation. Ditch okay. that shit. It's, it's ditched. But, but it, okay. It's gone. It, okay. Absolutely. But then, 
what the right often says is they'll go immediately get defensive and they'll say, I'm not, I apologize for being white, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no one's asking you to, there are some people that ask you to apologize. Fuck them, screw them. No, yeah. Forget, forget the fringes. Most people that will, or you could talk to about this aren't going to ask you to apologize. Most people of color just want you to be willing to listen and to be open-minded to the fact that things are not always equal, that, that certain, there are certain things you're not going to see. There's certain blind spots you have because you're white and that, that that's just true and we need to take the emotion a lot of the defensiveness out of it okay. so white fragility is a thing but the left often throws that term around way too often and thinks that that's another argument, one yeah 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 well, you're making that argument it must be because of white fragility that's that mind reading fallacy no some people have white fragility others don't it depends don't and always if assume. you don't believe in systematic racism is a yeah. thing then you'll be like well i'm not being white fragility or whatever i'm not embodying that because there is no systematic racism the person who actually got me thinking about this was seeing right. marianne williamson on dave's show oh yeah and she All came right. up with a couple examples of systematic racism and right. in, and i think one if you have if you're a black person you will be more likely convicted of, of the same exact crime even if you right. have the same priors or no priors you won't be more likely judged more harshly. And she said something about schools, certain, uh, there's funding based on property taxes. And I put that one up. That was the one I remember I tweeted about. And then people were like, no, that's a class problem, not a, uh, not a race problem. And I think that there are, that it does have to do with race because I do think that certain people weren't allowed to move into certain areas because of, and I said, Jim Crow, right? Like, I just, I don't know how to explain it because I don't know the history. But from what I've heard, it's something like that. So do, do you know, does that, that make sense? Yeah, so it, it often is. It, socioeconomics and class often correlates with race. And so like a lot of underfunded schools are both poor and they're also predominantly black. So it's like a self-reinforcing vicious cycle of right. poverty and racial segregation within these communities. Did that happen where, though? Like where they weren't allowed to move yeah. into certain zones? Well, it's where zones were deliberately drawn in certain ways based on either conscious or subconscious desire to kind of keep people sort of separated and to try to reinforce these white neighborhoods. So that is a real thing in, in terms and that's, of- Okay, and it doesn't even have to necessarily have been recently. That's just city planning from how long ago? Uh, oh, historically, it's a, it's a big thing. And also, I mean, there's even things that may seem small, but they mean a lot to people who experience them, like this discrimination against hairstyles. And California recently banned this, but like there's some black hairstyles that are considered taboo at work and unprofessional. And yet white stars, like I forgot names, but some of these white female singers rock the same hairstyles like, um, you know, cornrows or dreads, whatever. And they're considered fashionable. Like, that's bullshit, you know? Oh, I um, didn't know about that one. That, that is oh, ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I suffered any systematic oppression here, but I, when I got out of the army, I had a mullet. I grew it out. It looked like freaking Mel Gibson style lethal weapon roadhouse. Like, it was <laughs> bad. It was good. But I mean, I got compliments on it from some women, but... People would be like, dude, you, this is in the 90s. You got, you can't have hair like that. And I would do <laughs> working class jobs like ballet cars, ride a rickshaw. And I would probably get less tips because I had long hair because a lot of these 50-year-old geezers don't like long hair. Right. And they're oh, like, right. Even old-fashioned. Yeah, like that's a hippie yeah, beard. Yeah, the 60s when they were spreading syphilis and smoking weed and dropping acid. But now that they're geezers living in the suburbs, they're like, oh, I can't have hair like that. It's not personal responsibility, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So like just based on what you, yeah, what, yeah, what you wear, your, what your hair looks like, yeah. So, it doesn't compare, you know, but I'm just saying it's, it's, 
it just but, but, uh, the, the external appearance is uh, yeah you should be able to yeah have whatever hair you want so like okay the thing is why do people say on the right why do why is this going around that there's no systematic racism why is that going around i don't know it's really weird like i i by by no means am i am i a lefty, I tend to be identified as a skeptic. I have some views that align with the left. I have some views. I agree with conservatives on some things. I mean, it depends on what you're talking about. You know, I, I believe, um, you know, I think, I think that, hum, you know, facts and data and skepticism are some of the most important ways to look at a social problem. And there, it really is plenty of data on problems of racism and so like i i feel like it's this all or none thinking this defensive desire to avoid the other side being right or to, to reinforce this ideological belief kind of like the people want to maintain a belief in something they want something to be true so they're willing to ignore evidence that might disconfirm that belief so like people often a lot of conservatives desperately want to believe in self-reliance as an ideology I mean, obviously, we all believe in hard work and we believe self-reliance is good, but they want to believe we live in a society where all you need is hard work and everyone's born on a level playing field. And they so desperately want to believe that and maintain that belief architecture that they will ignore mountains of counterfacts. And I've dealt with this hundreds of – I've probably spent hundreds of hours over the, over the years after I got back – after I got out of the military um, arguing with conservatives about this. And I grew up in a conservative part of the country. I understand how they think. And so, you know, it, it depends on the conservative. There's a wide spectrum. There's plenty of conservatives that are much more reasonable about this. They'll say, yeah, there is systemic racism, but here's the better solutions, whatever. But there's some, I call it the ideological sort of, you know, identity-based conservatives that are very locked in their identity and their ideology. And they, they will often just religiously worship this idea, this doctrine of self-reliance, because they desperately want to believe that we, that, that that the system is 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 you know actually works for them. And then if it works for them, it works for other people, and that it's not broken, and that right. hard work is like and things like that. And they want to believe that because it's part of their ideology, and and they don't want to have that threatened. Right, and and you know? it, it might not work for everyone. There are people who slip through the cracks where it. I, yeah, like even someone, people with like, like I don't know who who like need assistance. Um, like it might whether whether it be a mental disability or mental illness or just there like this the social safety net it it is legitimate in some cases and I think like the idea of the state being a nanny state is like oh no we don't want that but sometimes you need some help and and yeah. not all private organizations can step up which is often the argument i think is like well private this is organizations so it, it is so this really deeply bothered me because i've been through this myself doing a startup and going through poverty and also i was hit by the great recession as well and you know so i mean i'm doing well now but i, I remember the the deep humiliation the the, the just the indignifying experience of poverty was worse than anything I've seen in the war zone. I'd rather, I would rather die than go through that again. It was horrible. Mm. The thing is, the, the, the lack of empathy and the lack of understanding that a lot of these people have is absolutely mind-blowing. So, like, I've given them scenarios, for example, where, like, you know, someone, you know, maybe someone's born in an underprivileged school or underfunded, you know, school or neighborhood or broken home at no fault of their own. They obviously start off on, on you know, 
they start off on third base, not for or first base, not third base, right? So right. They, they, they def it is not a level playing field, and no matter how many scenarios I give them, they'll often insist that it's all it's just about personal responsibility. Everyone's responsible only for themselves. We in, in you know anyone who needs help in any kind of way is failing, and most people don't go that far. Most people will say it's okay. Everyone needs help sometimes. Yeah. But then, what they do then is they'll insist that this that we don't need a stronger you know safety net they'll say private charities can somehow fill the vacuum it's just factually not true mm. that is an absurd ridiculous belief that's just not true i would like it to be true right and so i'm like look why don't we if we want if we believe in safety nets through charity why don't we invest in social innovation and just come up with the best ways to build a stronger safety net not a nanny state but a logical safety net that really empowers people and lifts them out of poverty quickly and gets them on the path to self-reliance. Certain types whenever, of programs, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. like school helping like, schools okay. to have school supplies. Yeah. Like, but when I start that conversation, I just get laughed at by a lot of these hardcore conservatives. They just dismiss it. Really? And they'll just say, oh, you know, create jobs. Is if that's the catch-all solution. Mm. And you know, just the sheer lack of identifying or showing any understanding to people that legitimately need help. That's mm. something that really blew my mind. You know, there's I, a blind like, spot. Like, that's what we were talking. There's blind spots on both sides. Like that's why I wanted to get into both these. This looking at both uh, things that are things that are missing on both sides, because, and that's why we have. It's important for both sides of. I've heard. I just heard this today. Said it. If you want a strong dad, you vote Republican. If you want a, a nurturing mom, you vote Democrat. So, like you know, I mean, big oversimplification, right? Well, but it's like it's like sometimes you need some of both at different times. Oh yes, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what people really. Yeah, people. There's ways people can complement each other. Jonathan Haidt made this point in his TED talk. People often fail to see that the other team sometimes has something to offer. Mm -hmm. And liberals mm -hmm. are often wired to sort of think in very egalitarian terms, and they may be missing some things. They may be missing some times when structure really is needed. And conservatives sometimes, if they're more moderate and sensible, they can help. Mm. And yet the problem is the majority and, and vice versa as well. But like the, the problem is with the conservative movement, that is – that has become so unhinged from some of its founding principles and its older, it, it is often far removed from what it used to be. Mm. And a lot of people in this movement don't even realize how radicalized it's become and how far removed it is from its former self. Like what? And, well, so you have a lot of people, um, Steve Schmidt's an example, but there's other people that have defected, tons of people have defected actually, saying this, I, this is, I no longer recognize this movement. Uh, for one, um, the a lot of the science denial, the fact denial, the tendency to tribally organize around a strong leader, to there's to, to, to the degree of confirmation bias and having this rigid platform ideology and dismissing anything on the other side and having this and, and, and most hard right people are not in their views are out of touch with most Americans. They're mm -hmm. if anything, they talk about the left being elite, but a lot of these people are out of touch. Their views do not reflect most Americans. They don't even reflect most moderate old school conservatives. Mm. They're unrecognizable. I have so many conservative friends that say, I don't recognize this movement anymore. What happened? The level of cruelty, the level of tribalism, the level of xenophobia, mm. and the refusal to confront racism within the movement. So no, I don't think most conservatives are racist, but there's a lot of racism, bigotry, and tribal slime within that movement. Mm. And people are to confront problems within their own community. It's right. a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And I, I give 
little example of, you know, trying to get more Muslims to denounce uh, problems within Islam. Mm. They often totally jump on that bandwagon and agree with that, but they don't say, why won't more conservatives show leadership and admit there's problems within their movement, problems of fact denial, of extreme bias, of tribal thinking, of xenophobia, cruelty, uh, empathy gaps to the poor and to immigrants. I mean, there really are people that do not give a damn mm. if kids are sent back home or ripped away from their families or people who've lived here their whole life at no fault of their own, at no right. fault of their own, live here. This is their only home. Mm -hmm. And they're ripped from the country. They have zero, zero empathy whatsoever. That's not a caricature. I've done this question many times with conservative forums. A lot of them do not care. Mm -hmm. And most conservatives I grew up with were not like this. Most of them were responsible gun owners. They take a shooting. I learned to shoot from an early age. You know, and, and I grew up in an environment where the idea of being a conservative was about, you know, lower lower taxes, simpler government, kindness to your neighbor and going to church and things like that. Whatever this this current model is on the right is unrecognizable right. compared to what you So I think we need a schism. I think we need a full on civil war of ideas, keyword ideas. Okay. Within because you have these people, a lot of these people are pushing for a literal civil war, which, by the way, is one of the stupidest, most ignorant things you can possibly want. Anyone who understands. Oh, we're not war. having muskets and, uh, like, no you know, where it takes 100 years to load your gun anymore here, people. No, like, they have zero idea what modern warfare actually looks like. They do not want it. They have absolutely no concept of how ugly that would be. People, but, these people, I don't care, even the ones with military backgrounds, these people talking about wanting a civil war, these people are freaking idiots. Well, okay, I, I, but the ones on the right that you're describing, that that can't be the majority of the right, though. No, no, it's not. And that's right. where liberals often, they fail to distinguish between your average person who still identifies as a conservative, because that's how they were brought up and they want smaller government, things like that. They lump them in with the extremist, and that's mm. that's the problem. They need to be talking to those conservatives. Mm. They need vibrant conversation across this country with liberals talking to conservatives. That hasn't happened for decades, and that's part of the problem. Right. And people seem to realize that. The okay. Okay. How do you do yeah. it online? You talked about doing so, it in person. How do we do that online, though? I think online is often. A lot of people tell me it's hopeless online, but I think the best thing to do is create alternative discussion spaces, specifically YouTube videos that show people having a conversation together, like mm -hmm. a liberal and a conservative, mm -hmm. actually talking over coffee or beer and, and showing ways they agree. Mm -hmm. That needs to be like an arms race of civil discourse that needs to get venture capital funding from billionaires tomorrow. And there needs to be a project. Like I'll a new take Manhattan. it. I'll host it. Yeah, pitch that. I, I'm actually working to pitch this stuff. Okay. I mean, I have a whole proposal for this, but, but we need a million times over what we see with like Dave Rubin talking to somebody. Well, I think. Well, you know what? People aren't happy with Dave anymore because he only sticks with well, we anti SJW. He does, and right. then Marianne Williamson being on was the kind of a breath of fresh air, even though a lot of people make fun of her. I I know she says some stuff I, crazy, huh? I only, I mean, I've, I've talked to Ruben. I, I know a lot of his original guests uh, personally, and I've, I've watched his original episodes. I haven't kept track of I most did too originally, but lately, um, and I've asked people why they're like disenchanted with him. People who are like, yeah, I used to be a Ruben fan, but I'm not anymore. Because he only, it, it's like a yes, like a yes, yes, yes. We hate the right. SJWs. Sorry. I've, I've we told, not I've we hate, you. but we, we are against the SJWs. And there's, there's not a. So many 
effective ways to engage the SGWs. I've told Ruben this, like have more veterans on that have these, I, that have some of these tools from the war zone well, who understand know, like, how to engage. That only, that and I haven't watched it lately, but is. he's very yeah. like one-sided and that's what the IDW gets critiqued for, but like they're not really doing these things now because they've kind of just, they've kind of like gone on a hiatus. I don't know. I shouldn't say that, but like they're not, I don't see this as much now, but like the critique that I've seen is that they, they talk about anti far left, which is because a lot of them came out of that and they're like, oh, this is like with Brett coming from Evergreen State College, like he saw right. it firsthand. So I don't blame the why they focus on it. I don't blame that. But, you know, right. people like Rogan, they he has on really like I've seen him have like the running the gamut of very far Alex Jones for goodness sakes, you know, he's had far like yeah. not far far right, but like pretty far right. And then and he's had on I can't remember her name shoot, but she's this pretty far left reporter. Um he had on Kyle Talinsky, yep. is that the, is that the, he's a left guy. I don't know if I'm Dave saying. Packman. Hmm? Is it Dave Packman? I don't Dave remember. Packman. I maybe, I don't know, but he's had on a lot of different people that are like pretty oh, yeah. far on the, you know, spectrums of different, whatever. But the reason why people are not super happy with Dave is because he only has like stuff to confirm what you think, not challenge. Right. Like, well, maybe the left isn't all of this. Maybe the left isn't completely broken. Like it's only showing why the left's broken. And, I, that's and true. Yeah. I don't. And I don't know. I, I once again, I've not seen Dave's stuff in the last few years. So I've been so busy. Even I've, I've talked to him a number of times. Very nice guy. Whenever I see him, I, you mm. know, he's told me like, hey, you know, he's like, I mean, I know he's slammed with, you know, people to interview and his heart doing what he does. But but at the same time, like, yeah, I agree. There's definitely ways to not just talk about Dave, but talking about the IDW and just the wider sort of the, the sort of new center movement in general. There really are ways to expand how we talk to people on the left, and really productive ways to open up conduits. Because they're not, for, yeah. So this for, is the sorry. This yep. is, and I haven't even been watching. Like, sorry, I'm totally talking over you. Like, so, so. No. Okay, so it's not even that, because I have to be honest. Like, I, it takes me forever to edit anything, so I barely watch many podcasts or YouTube videos that are like an hour long anymore myself, because I uh, have to do my stuff, but. I, this is just what I've seen on Twitter and the clips that people have sent critiquing Dave. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see that. Like I can see where they're coming from because, and, and then when he had Marianne on, he wasn't how he usually is because he, he disagreed with her. So he usually has people on who he only agrees with. Oh, I see that. I Do you see, see what you're words? Like, yeah, I know. There's like, there's no more left anymore. Like, oh, uh, like people. Why? Well, this is why I left the left people right here. Like, that's kind of what. Like, they're no. He's not talking to people on the left. Do you want to know a dirty little secret? So I've been to the left forum three different. The left forum is the biggest leftist gathering in the country. It's okay. huge, and it has everything from literal communist to full blown revolutionary people, socialists. Every it, it runs the gamut. Okay. And I went straight into the lion's den. I chaired three panels on political discourse to, to specifically to engage the left. And all three panels were productive. One was on police reform. And I did that with a retired uh, police captain and a uh, friend of mine from uh, a predominantly black uh, community. Mm -hmm. And he also did one on combating the far right extremism. And I did another one with a, uh, a um, Palestinian friend of mine and an Indonesian friend It was on um, is how uh, on how the left can support ex-Muslims and mm -hmm. tackle 
for the Islam while defending Muslims as people. Mm -hmm. Basically, how to use how to get around the Ben Affleck effect you saw on Bill Marshall, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's a roadmap for how the left can talk about Islam. Right. And I don't think they'd ever been exposed to that. And now I expected chairs to fly, and Linda Sarsour, I think, was one of the big speakers at this thing. So I thought people would like bring a protest mob. No, it was actually extremely productive. And if you want to know, and we use the techniques I was talking about, we established early on what we valued, that we shared fear of bigotry against Muslims. We immediately diffused their concerns. Mm. We defined our terms, and then we we used the techniques of tribal engagement and common ground and moral psychology. Right. And it was a very productive conversation. And there Ooh. were Muslims in the too. And so the thing is, you want to know a dirty little secret? A lot of if people who are listening to this, there are many people on the left who actually agree with centrist and people like Dave Rubin and can't stand the extreme SGWs. Most people on the left can't stand SGWs. That's a dirty little secret. Most well, I know, know, and that's why we need to, that's why I think we need to, that, like, I, that's what I'm, I'm going to try to do that to, like, look, yeah. to kind of get more views to be, because there's sort of this, well, there's this, like, idea, and I thought of, thought it, too, because I, I, again, I'm in Canada, so I'm a little bit removed. Oh, there's no well, left left. There's only this really far left thing. It's far left or centrist, but there is a left though. It, it does exist. It's you don't have to leave. Ask, well, let me ask you this: uh, talk about practical solutions online. One thing we can do, and I, I've, I'm writing this in my book, which I'm trying to should be out uh, hopefully next year. If I, and I've written articles about this. We need like an incubator, like a conversation incubator, mm. for the left and the center talking to each other, and specifically for both both ends. Mm. to identify mis areas where they misunderstand the other side right. and areas where they can improve. So be an incubator of self-improvement for the left to safely and productively talk about some of its blind spots. And mm. that'll help them. That'll help them adapt. Mm. That'll help grow and improve. And show me one field. This is what I don't understand. People on the left often resist that. They're like, you, you can't, you've got to be united against Trump and you can't criticize the left right now. I'm like, show me one area from engineering, science, technology, athletics, anything. Show me one area where resisting feedback and criticism and avoiding self-improvement actually helps you. Name one domain where right. that's true. You can't. It's so why it's would it Yeah. yeah why would hard. it not be politics to see your blind spots and improve? Right. And, and if it's done in a productive way, it's going to be an incubator of self-awareness and intellectual humility. And that'll help both sides understand each other and it'll help both sides grow yeah. and it'll help people like centrist see where they where the social justice people have valid points right this right yes social, it's a win for everybody it so is let's incubate but yeah this is okay i think this is probably a good good space to end because i've got to go put sure. my children to bed okay but i gotta go up, or, okay. up to the bar and drink so okay I'm just okay kidding, opposite opposite good agenda things there. yeah good things all around so okay yeah i think this is yeah this is a important to hear it's important to hear both sides and it's important to be open to hearing the other side and to not label them as evil but to yeah. see different like oh even if i don't 100 percent agree maybe you're seeing something i'm missing that's i think the biggest thing i'm taking away from this absolutely yeah 